Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. The show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and we are broadcasting from just outside Washington, D.C. as part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series, we have a special episode that promises to challenge your perceptions and inspire action on the part of all, especially our Smithsonian Associates audience. Today, we're honored to have Dr. Stephen Porter on the program who will discuss his groundbreaking new book, Elemental, How Five Elements Changed Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future. It's available now. Dr. Stephen Porter will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details. But we have Dr. Stephen Porter today. He's going to be chatting with us about Smithsonian and all things ecology-related and answering the question how life can change Earth, microbes, plants, and people can alter the climate and with it change the trajectory of life on Earth. Our guest today, Dr. Stephen Porter, promises to be as enlightening as he is engaging. Today, we have the privilege of hosting a luminary in the field of ecology and sustainability, Smithsonian Associate, Dr. Stephen Porter. Now, why should you, especially those in the golden years of life, pay attention to what he has to say? Well, let's jump in. Dr. Stephen Porter is not just a professor of ecology, evolutionary biology, and environment and society at Brown University. He also holds the unique title of being the nation's first associate provost for sustainability. Truly a fascinating position. His credentials alone speak volumes about the depth and breadth of his expertise. Stephen Porter's latest work, Elemental, How Five Elements Changed the Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future, is nothing short of revolutionary. It explores how five essential elements, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus, have been the building blocks that have shaped Earth's history and will continue to shape its future. Hi, this is Stephen Porter. I'm the author of Elemental, How Five Elements Changed Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future. I'm going to read a section from the third part of the book, but I'd like to just briefly cover what the first two parts are about. The book is about organisms that have changed the world and the elemental thread, literally the chemical elemental thread, that connects world-changing organisms and the changes they precipitate. In this chapter, called Biogeochemical Luck, I'm going to be talking about how understanding those organisms from the deep past and the elements they use to change the world can help us uh, achieve a more sustainable future. So I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 8, Biogeochemical Luck. One of the most troubling comments from my students is that my class, Environmental Science in a Changing World, is, quote, too depressing. I get it. It is depressing. I've struggled to see a way forward. I am an environmental scientist someone who uses the scientific method to observe and understand the changes humans are making to the environment around us and to understand the consequences of those changes. But I'm also an environmentalist, someone who values the natural world and seeks to minimize the adverse effects of human activities. 
Like many environmentalists, I spent a lot of time looking backward. What I mean by this is that I often dream of returning to an imagined idyllic past where humans had a light footprint and nature was left to be as it was. A lot of scholarship has shown that this idealized past is a fantasy. At least for the last several thousand years, humans have had a big influence on the world we live in, and places that European colonists deemed empty hosted vast civilizations with profound ecological implications. My research and that of others in many fields have shown just how dramatic our alterations are. Despite this, the fantasy is a powerful one, a world left to its own devices for us to enjoy, marvel in, and leave in peace. But there are almost 8 billion of us on the planet. We rely on altering the flow of the elements in life's formula and enjoy the benefits of those these elements bring. What's more, we will need more energy, more nutrients, and more water to build a more equitable future. So I've slowly abandoned my dream of returning to the past. We cannot go back in time when humans were not the managers of the Earth system. At first, I had nothing to replace this ideal with, and it was then that my classes were the most depressing. But the more I've thought about the dictates of life's formula, the, the more I've come to think that there is a way forward. Not to a future where we don't manage the Earth system, but to a future where we manage it more wisely. Nowhere is the need for wiser management more pressing than for carbon and climate change. I'll focus on this first and come back to the future of life's other elements in the next chapter. So, carbon. Yes, we've changed the carbon cycle. Yes, the world is warming. Yes, the chemistry of life and our planet will make those changes inevitable for as long as we continue to create elevated levels of greenhouse gases in the air. Instead of focusing on the problem, though, I want to home in on the potentially life-saving difference between us and our predecessors. Recall that for the cyanobacteria, whose proliferation meant the rapid rise of oxygen-generating photosynthesis... I'm sorry. Recall that for the cyanobacteria, whose proliferation meant the rapid rise of oxygen-generating photosynthetic organisms, there was no way to grow without pumping oxygen into the environment. The efficient photosynthetic reaction taking place in their cells has to produce oxygen. The land plants were similarly constrained. Their proliferation made planetary changes inevitable. The carbon stored in their bodies and their relentless attack on rocks to liberate nutrients and fuel growth eventually pulled enough CO2 out of the air to precipitate massive changes in climate. Of course, humans play by similar physiological rules. We eat plants and animals that are full of carbon-rich compounds, break down those compounds to release energy, and breathe out CO2. There's no way around that. It's baked into our chemistry. Fortunately for us, and in stark contrast to our world-changing predecessors, it's not the unalterable chemical reactions inside our bodies that are causing the global carbon cycle to change. The impact of our internal chemistry on the global carbon cycle is limited because there aren't nearly as many humans as there are of our world-changing predecessors. Plants make up more than 80% of all the living matter on Earth. Bacteria make up 12%. Humans? About one hundredth of 1%. Our internal metabolism isn't a big deal. There just aren't enough of us to matter. In contrast to the other world changers, we use vast quantities of carbon-based energy outside our bodies. This energy is released by burning fossil fuels to heat our homes, run our cars, and manufacture our goods. It's the use of this external energy that is the major driving force in climate change. That difference between our internal and external energy opens the door to a different future. 
That, of course, is our guest today, Smithsonian Associate Dr. Stephen Porter, reading from his new book, Elemental, How Five Elements Changed Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future. So are you ready to explore how you can contribute to a more sustainable future informed by life's essential elements and billions of years of Earth's history? Stay tuned because this is one conversation you won't want to miss. Please welcome Smithsonian Associate Dr. Stephen Porter. Dr. Stephen Porter, it's so great to talk to you. Welcome to the program. And let's just jump right in. Let's talk a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. And we'll be talking about your new book, Elemental. So let's just kick it right off. Sure. So um, so the story is about these three organisms that have changed the world and the five chemical elements that they have used to change the world. I gave away before that humans were the third. And so the last part of the book and the last part of the talk is about how we can use that understanding of the way that organisms change the world to build a more sustainable future, to learn from our world-changing predecessors what we need to do in order to avert the environmental uh, uh, catastrophe that we are sort of headed towards if we continue with business as usual. And I want to stress that we can do this. Uh, this is not a book about the end of the world. This is a book about how understanding the world can help us build a more sustainable future. And um, ultimately, um, we're almost there. Fascinating. Thank you for that, Dr. Porter. I, I appreciate it. That's really helpful. This is such an important subject. I wonder if you could, you could just drill down for us a, a little bit on, on these five essential elements, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus. Do I, do I have those right? You do. You okay. do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a couple of vignettes. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, please. Um, so hydrogen and oxygen go together in water. And I think it's pretty easy for us all to conceptualize uh, why water is important uh, to all living things. And at, a, at an elemental level, it's important because the vast majority of the atoms in our bodies are hydrogen and oxygen from water. Um, if you're an organism that lives in the ocean... It's no problem to get water, right? It's all around you. But if you're an organism that lives on land, uh, it, you have to go to enormous lengths to make sure that you have enough water. So the second world-changing organism in the story is, are, are the land plants, the, the, the photosynthetic organisms that evolved in the ocean and then moved onto land about 400 million years ago. And they had to essentially replumb the continents build roots, do all sorts of things in order to prevent themselves from drying out and dying, um, whereas their ocean-dwelling predecessors did, didn't have to do that. Um, humans living on land have done the same. We have replumbed the continents. Uh, we have more water stored in, river, in, in reservoirs than exist in all of the world's rivers. We are pulling so much water out of the ground that we're actually changing the the wobble of of the earth's uh, uh of the of the i'm sorry we're pulling so much water out of the ground that you can actually detect changes in gravity from space hmm. um so we are doing what the plants did in that way and i'll give another example um in order to and this is an example from the first world changers the cyanobacteria um, which really precipitated the biggest environmental change of all time. Those were ocean-dwelling, single-celled organisms that coupled a new way of doing photosynthesis, a more efficient way of capturing energy 
capturing the, the sunlight that was hitting the planet, with a new way of gathering nitrogen, pulling it from the air. And nitrogen is a critical element in all of our all proteins. Uh, it's a critical element in uh, the photosynthetic machinery. And so an ability to get more energy and ability to get more nitrogen allowed cyanobacteria to proliferate wildly with enormous environmental consequences. Well, how have humans mimic the cyanobacteria? In the early 20th century, we became the first multicellular organism in the history of life to figure out how to pull nitrogen from the air and use it for our own purposes. We have an industrial process that mimics what the cyanobacteria do in the ocean and, in fact, what leguminous uh, plants do on land. And that innovation has allowed us to feed an, a growing population that would have been unimaginable if we hadn't figured out how to do that. We estimate that roughly uh, we could produce food for about half of the people on Earth if we did not have nitrogen fertilizer. So these are just two examples of how those elements, those five chemical elements, can constrain life on Earth and how overcoming those constraints allows you to multiply your population to the point where you begin to have very large environmental consequences. And so that really shapes up kind of the progress of society, you know, fertilizer, crops, uh, you know, just feeding a, a growing population. What what other elements have led to a degradation of kind of our environment and the, the kind of the blue planet that have also caused uh, negative consequences. Yeah. So the 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 biggest one in this story uh, in the 21st century is obviously climate change. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about well, there are many things that are interesting about climate change, but for the purposes of this story, um, we have dug up so much fossil carbon. In fact, fossil plants uh, are what make up coal, and so the wildly successful land plants. Um, who I was just talking about a minute ago in terms of replumbing the continent, they actually grew so wildly and pulled so much carbon dioxide out of the air that they took a once tropical, all tropical world, warm from pole to pole, and precipitated an ice age. 300 million years later, we found their compressed, concentrated bodies in coal deposits and started re-injecting that carbon into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. And the planet, as a result, is warming up, as we all know. So what is it about carbon dioxide? We don't want carbon dioxide. We want the energy, the ancient sunlight, stored in those fossilized plants. And so we uh, take that chemical energy and we burn it and we extract the energy to power our society. And by accident, we put carbon dioxide into the air. Nobody wants to put carbon dioxide into the air. We want energy. But as a byproduct of our success, we are profoundly changing the planet. And that, too, is a theme uh, that links us to our world-changing predecessors, because they, as well, their basic chemistry uh, produced byproducts that profoundly changed the world. The great hope, though, is that unlike our world-changing predecessors, we use most of the energy from fossil fuels and we use most energy outside our bodies. What do I mean by that? We each need a certain amount of food 
But it's not the amount of food we need that is causing climate change. Mm. It's the amount of energy that we use to heat our buildings and to drive our cars and to fly our airplanes and to power our industry and to live our our lives, um, but not to power our bodies. And as a result of that, we have an opportunity to get our energy in a way that doesn't produce world-changing consequences. We all play a role in this, I think. And and you have this really fascinating title that just jumped out at me. You're the very first provost for sustainability, and you serve that role um, at your university. But across the country, um, I'm sure other educational institutions are, are taking note. And and just like me, I, 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 it just jumped out at me, and I'm sure it did with the Smithsonian. So what is it that academic institutions can do to understand and develop this sustainable future working together because it it is up to all of us i think to understand this and act on it yeah this is a great question and something that motivates my every day um and i think that academic institutions particularly uh well-off academic institutions in well-off countries like the one i'm at uh, i'm at brown university Mm -hmm. um We have an obligation to uh, not only teach about solutions, but embody those solutions. So as provost for sustainability uh, and as a community, we are eliminating fossil fuel combustion from campus as quickly as possible. We will have done that by 2040, uh, and we will have done most of that before 2040. Um, We are uh, increasing our research and teaching around this topic. We already do a lot of it, and we need to do more. Um, And I think that we need to focus more and more on solutions as opposed to just describing problems. Um, And that's going to take everybody. Uh, Solutions are not just engineering. They're not just economics. They're not just politics. They're art. They're storytelling. They're persuasive communication. They're every aspect of society. As you mentioned, every part of society needs to sort of pull in the same direction on this one. So as the Provost for Sustainability, Uh, I see it as my role to integrate everything from what we're doing in our heating plant to provide heat in the winter to what we're serving in our dining halls to what research is happening on campus to what teaching is happening to what people experience as they walk from one lecture hall back to their dorm. All of that, I want uh, to amplify the message that we have a responsibility and an opportunity to build a more sustainable future. Climate anxiety and environmental anxiety is rampant in our society, and certainly it is on our college campuses. And I think um, it's our role as universities to not just uh, decry the problem, but lead the way towards solutions, both both in in, uh, walking the walk, right? Like we really have to, we can't just talk about it, we have to do it. Uh, And then we have to teach people all that they need so they can talk the talk and really understand the issues. And uh, I see my role as as trying to push us for for both of the in, in, in both of those directions. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life? and everything Smithsonian. As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers 
Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Porter. Dr. Stephen Porter has written the new book, Elemental, How Five Elements Changed Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future. Dr. Porter will be appearing at Smithsonian Associate. Please check out the website for more details about Dr. Porter's upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, as well as his new book, Elemental, and all of the information that we're going to share here about resources from uh, this subject. Dr. Porter, you, you... you really deserve a great deal of congratulations for for the book, as well as all the work you're doing with regard to sustainability. That that just sounds like an enormous undertaking. But but thank you. Um, I wonder if you tell us about your time in the Amazon rainforest because I thought I thought that was a, just an interesting story and and how that's influenced you, your perspective on on all of this. Uh, and and in particular, these these key elements. So the Amazon and rainforests in general have been really critical uh, components of my own personal journey mm-hmm. in this space. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dissertation work was basically about how the the landscape that a tropical forest sits on influences how much photosynthesis it does, and how how much it grows, and how how nutrients flow through that system, and I was really interested in that science because it brought me uh, from my background, which was sort of more in deep geologic time, to something that I thought was more more relevant to modern society. And frankly, I loved being outdoors. I loved being in the forest with a slingshot, shooting down leaves and, <laughs> and, and catching them and then bringing them yeah. back to the lab and analyzing them. Yeah. And it was, it was a very fun job. Um, yeah. It is a very fun job. Um, but... The focus on intact tropical forests um, began to be not enough for me um, because every time I would be in an intact tropical forest, I would have to drive through or go through miles and miles and miles of cleared forest, right? And and see the world changing around these places and and understand that it was important to understand the future of these intact forests and something about what I was studying was important for them. But really what was most important was whether we decided to cut them down or not. Like that was really going to determine the future of tropical forests. Um, In terms of, so that moved me into a more, uh, I would say, urgent phase of my career in terms of working on the problems more directly than just working on the basic science part of the problems. In terms of informing the book and Elemental, Tropical forests are a fascinating example of the constraints that are placed on life by these elements. So to take the Amazon as an example, you have a place that has warm temperatures, so plants can grow all year round. In most, uh, well, in all of the the forest, there's abundant rainfall, although in some places it's very dry for a good portion of the year, but then it's quite wet in the other portion of the year. You have an abundance of plants that have the ability that host in their roots bacteria that can pull nitrogen out of the air uh, and make their own fertilizer. So these are so-called legumes um, in the, we think of legumes as peas and beans and crops, but mm-hmm. they're in the tropics, are trees that are legumes and do the same thing. They, they make their own nitrogen fertilizer. So one could ask, well, what constrains the growth of tropical forests? Like they've got it all, except for the in places like the Amazon that are very geologically stable, uh, 
the soils have been sitting in place and weathering and weathering and weathering for a really long time. And so the nutrients like phosphorus that were contained in that rock, the rock that was the parent of the soil, if you will, those have begun and those have leached away. And so the Amazon rainforest and, and some older rainforest in Hawaii where I did my dissertation, they're actually sustained by dust that is blowing in from, in the Amazon's case, from the Sahara. Um, and it's that teleconnection between the dust in the Sahara and the nutrients that it brings to the Amazon that actually helps maintain productivity. So that's a good example of the constraints that are placed on life by these by these elements. In fact, in the forest that I worked on and worked in in Hawaii, in the older forests, those forests wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for a trickle of dust that came from the Gobi Desert, uh, or, you know, a little bit every year over the millennia, replacing or at least compensating in some way for the the phosphorus and other nutrients that have, that were leaching out of the soil as it sat there in place. So that's one example of of how these elements can constrain. Uh, life on Earth. So um, what have those forests done? Well, they have evolved mechanisms to recycle phosphorus incredibly efficiently. I have a picture in the book of a, of a leaf with mushrooms sprouting out of the leaf. And that's, those are fungi that are colonizing a leaf basically as soon as it hits the ground and pulling the nutrients back out of it. And that's even after the plants have sucked a whole bunch of nutrients out of the leaf before, before it even fell to the ground. Um, so ecological systems are very conservative with elements that are in short supply. And that is a, a key lesson, uh, I think, that we need to take. It's not that everything is perfectly recycled in nature. That's sort of a trope that we hear, but it's not true. Uh, uh, ecosystems are extremely efficient at retaining those things that are scarce, but they're not particularly efficient at retaining those things that are really abundant. For example, the Amazon rainforest leaks a lot of nitrogen because nitrogen is relatively available there. And so it's not particularly conservative with regards to nitrogen, but it is very conservative with regards to phosphorus. So that's, that's the forest part. If I, if I might just say one more thing about how this has influenced my trajectory, mm -hmm. I have a student walked into my office, and I talk about this in the book, and she really changed, she changed my worldview with, with one photo. She showed me a photo of what I could have sworn was Iowa, just a field of soybeans as far as the eye could see. And it wasn't a photo of Iowa. It was a photo of the Amazon. Hmm. And those soybeans were growing just as well as the soybeans in Iowa, which are supposedly on the best soils in the world. And what was the difference? The difference was that in Brazil, the southern Amazon, they were dumping enormous amounts of phosphorus fertilizer on, and they were changing the chemistry, the acidity of the soil to help that phosphorus be more available to plants. And with those two interventions, they changed what were previously considered to be the world's worst soils for growing crops into an agricultural powerhouse. And Brazil now produces roughly as much soybeans as the U.S. Those are the two biggest producers in the world. So it really, again, demonstrated the power uh, of these elements. But uh, our system, our agricultural system is linear. We mine the phosphorus. We ship it to Brazil. We dump it on those farm fields. Those soybeans get moved probably either to Europe or to China, where they are excreted either by animals or by people and dumped into the ocean, uh, and that phosphorus is gone hmm. uh, and uh, basically unrecoverable. So we've taken a system that recycles almost perfectly for phosphorus and turned it into one where 
you know, millions of years worth of phosphorus deposits are flowing uh, through through the system in a year or a decade. What steps can we take? You know, individuals, communities, our Smithsonian Associates audience. We're many of us are pursuing second acts and and uh, trying to give back. How do how do we work together to ensure this um, sustainable future of these elements? Yeah. That's a great question, and and I love it that we have an audience that wants to wants to engage with this. Um, the first thing I will say is at the individual level, um, focus on the things that are really impactful, and give yourself a break on the things that aren't. We are bombarded every day with all the things we're doing to destroy everything. Uh, you can't pick up the newspaper or turn on the TV or listen to the radio without feeling guilty about the plastic bag you have or the kind of socks you're wearing or whatever. I think that one of the really important things about this idea of these five elements is that they can provide us with a framework of the things to really focus on first and urgently. And so the first and most urgent environmental issue of our time is climate change. If you have time to devote to that, to an environmental issue, that's the one that I would hope that we would all pull hardest on first. Mm -hmm. And that means at the individual level, doing the things it takes to really reduce your own personal emissions. So what does that mean? If you, your next car should be an electric car, your house should no longer have any combustion in it. So what does that mean? It means instead of heating your house in the winter with a furnace and air conditioning in the summer with air conditioners, you replace with one unit with something called a heat pump which works as an air conditioner in the summer and it heats your house in the winter. That runs on electricity. You can do the same with your hot water heater. At that point, if you have an electric vehicle and electric heat pumps and an electric hot water heater and an electric stove, an induction stove, you can reduce your house emissions by about 80%. And if you have the opportunity to put solar panels on or contract for community-based solar, you can reduce your emissions even more. And what's better is that every year, as the grid itself has more and more renewables, your house and your life will be cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. So focus on those things. Worry less about whether you get a straw at the super, at the coffee shop mm-hmm. um, and focus on the things that really matter. If you're interested in reducing your nutrient and water uh, footprint, then the biggest thing you can do is cut down on your meat, red meat and your dairy. Um, those are the two biggest, on a per kilogram basis, those are the two biggest consumers of nutrients and water uh, and producers of nutrient pollution. And try to unclutter a little bit all of the other things you feel guilty for. I think it's impossible for humans to, like, if you if I tell you 50 things that you have to do every day uh, or you're going to destroy the planet, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, you know, then... It's like, what are you going to do? The the, the research says that what you're going to do is focus on the easy thing and give yourself a pass on the hard thing because you at least did something. (laughs) And so I I think it's really important that we focus on the big things. And I just gave us a list of of five. Mm -hmm. I think there's another level up from that, though. Um, And this one, I think, is really important. Everybody who's listening to this right now um, has a community of people who trust them and who respect their opinion. 
And those are very different communities. It may be your faith community. It may be that you're a member of the former member or member of the military. It may be a club that you're a part of or a sports group that you're part of, whatever it is. If you're a trusted member of the community, then talk to those members, to the other members of the community about this issue and try to bring them along on this understanding of how we can build a more sustainable future. I have a certain group of people who listen to me and a whole bunch of people who don't because I'm not a trusted messenger, because they don't know me, because I come from a different background or have a different worldview or I have a different political perspective. We need everybody who cares about this issue to talk in their communities about this. And I borrow this idea from Catherine Hayhoe, who's a brilliant climate scientist and communicator. So I don't want to pretend that this is my idea, but um, but it's a really important one that I think we miss sometimes in this conversation um, when we get mad that other people don't don't agree with us on a particular topic. My my father was a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, and he used to say that almost every human disagreement boils down to why can't you think more like me? Um, and I think that plays out a lot in our politics and in our conversations uh, 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 around this issue and around all issues. Um, and the last thing I would say on that same front about talking to people is I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning trying to make the world a worse place. Nobody has that goal when they wake up in the morning. And so when we talk to other people about this issue, maybe people who don't care as much or, or don't agree or think that maybe this is all just some sort of hoax, right? They're not that way because they, they don't have that opinion because they want to make the world a, a worse place. So I think it would help us to start from a position of um, of understanding that not everybody has the same priorities and not everybody has the same beliefs, and then working towards common ground. I think that the scientific evidence is overwhelming and um, and overwhelming in terms of its convincingness, but also just overwhelming. Like people are not used to dealing with flows of scientific data. So maybe it's not about providing 18 more facts, but connecting with people and and building trust and understanding so that we can work together uh, to make to make things better. I, I said at the top of the show that this is just such an important subject, and you, you've just said this so so well, and and I, I appreciate this, Dr. Porter. I, I really just have one final question, and and you reference this. The book is optimistic. You're an optimistic person. Your optimism and enthusiasm, um, positive nature, is is infectious, and it's really been helpful. What what keeps you hopeful about our ability to? to really develop kind of a, a positive few steps to be able to talk to one another um, and and make you know more awareness of these elements, but also have a positive outcome for them. Well, I got to tell you, um, I was it's not it's not always easy, right, to be <laughs> optimistic when, right, when, right. when there's so, so much to worry about. And yeah. I think a lot of people feel that way. I, I had a couple of uh, sort of really key moments uh, in my in my thinking on this, um, really, I'd say three. So the first is that when I used to teach uh, the intro environmental science class, I would always get this comment that the class was too depressing, and <laughs> and you know, well, it's good content, but but it's too depressing. And they were always asking me, what can I do? And I spent my time teaching them about, you know, world was was going to hell in a handbasket, if you'll pardon my <laughs> language, right, right. right? And they would say, well, what can I do? And so I started to change the course a little bit towards, well, what can we do? Um, 
we run a little podcast. We run a podcast on sustainability science mm-hmm. out, out of Brown. And my daughter was on the inaugural show. She was, I think, in fifth or sixth grade at the time. And she was interviewed by the host. And, and my daughter said, living with my dad is like watching an inconvenient truth 95% of the time. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I laughed about it just like yeah. you're laughing about yeah. it. But over the years, I was like, God, yeah, I don't want to be that guy. Like, uh. God, that, that, that's no fun, right? And and then, so so that was sort of a personal transformation. I think I think the bigger... The bigger thing outside of me is that we're making so much progress, you know, I mean, you don't hear about it, but the progress is coming. I mean, electric vehicles are already cheaper over the lifetime of the vehicle than gas vehicles. And they have, you know, probably around 75% lower emissions, even now, even before batteries are going to be way more efficiently produced and produced with renewable electricity. Uh, The innovations in heat pumps that I was talking about earlier those now there was just a study that came out that shows that they're at least twice as efficient as oil, even in the coldest climates. Hmm. Right. So these technology, I'm not a techno optimist. This is not like, you know, someday a magic solution will come and fix all these problems post hoc. These are technologies that have evolved in the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, 15 years ago, there were no electric cars to speak of. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one that was mm-hmm. killed by GM. There was yeah. even a document or, yeah, right. There's a documentary about yeah. that. Who killed yeah. the electric car. Nobody killed the electric car anymore, right? Yeah, right? And they're more fun to drive. They're more efficient, whatever. Is that going to save the whole world? No. But that transportation is a huge part of our emissions problem, right? And it, they, can, they can play a huge role in that, in that. So I see innovation all around us. I see millions of people, literally millions of people, who are working on solutions to this problem from every walk of life. I see activists, I see engineers, I see mathematicians, I see economists, I see everyday people. This is doable. I think that uh, I'm I'm perennially surprised by people who are so uh, enamored of human ingenuity and our potential, except when it comes to this problem, when they say this is unsolvable, right? And I just don't see it that way. I, I think the 21st century is going to be very challenging, and we have put ourselves in a bit of a pickle, to say the least. I'm not Pollyanna about this. It's Mm -hmm. going to be hard. Mm -hmm. But we just because we don't know how to get 100% to the solution doesn't mean we can't start on the path to the 75% we understand and work it out as we go. So that's one really important idea. We can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, and we have to start, Mm -hmm. and we are starting. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would say is that the problem is not everything is perfect and then we go over a cliff and everything is disaster and the world ends. Every ton of carbon, for example, that we keep out of the atmosphere is a good ton of carbon, to quote one of my colleagues. And every ton we put in is going to make the situation worse. So, okay, we're, it's going to get worse. We're continuing to put carbon in the atmosphere, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight as hard as we can to limit that number to as low as we possibly can get it. Am I optimistic that it's going to be perfect? No, not at all. Am I optimistic that we can make it better than it would be if we didn't try? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an important important thing to take home is that it's not all or nothing. Um, It's not in seven years we will pass a cliff and then we'll all, it's all over. It's we want to try and limit the total damage. We can do that. We can't eliminate all of it, but Eliminating most of it is a lot better than doing nothing. Um, 
So, look, I started my life as an academic. Uh, I published a lot of scientific papers that, you know, were very interesting to me and to the other people in the community. Um, I'm 51 years old now. I uh, have whatever it is, 25 years left, 20, 25 years left in my career. And uh, I personally am going to do everything I can to keep as many tons of carbon and as much nutrient pollution out of the world as I possibly can. Uh, you know, they can maybe put the, the number of tons on my tombstone. I don't know. <laughs> but that's, uh, you know, that's where I'm devoting my energy. And I'm certainly not alone, right? There's uh, people all over the world doing this. And I believe and I hope, but mostly I believe that we can that we can do it. We can't solve the problem completely, but we can make the world a better place. And, and ultimately, what better legacy could you possibly leave? Dr. Stephen Porter, author of the new book, Elemental, How Five Elements Changed Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future. I'm right there by your side, and many, many, many others are too. Thanks for all you're doing. Congratulations on this wonderful book. Please come back and talk to us about this important subject. I will put up a link so that our audience can find the podcast, possibly uh, Dr. Porter's podcast, where you can hear kids say the darndest things, among other (laughs) things. But Dr. Porter, congrats on all this. Uh, The research is amazing and your optimism is just just great. We, We can all take some action. Thank you and we'll look forward to seeing you at Smithsonian Associates. Really appreciate your time and I'll just put one other plug in. We'd love to have you back. We'd love to hear more about this as you do more work on it. I would be thrilled to come back anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Porter. My thanks to Dr. Stephen Porter, Smithsonian Associate, who will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates. Coming up, please check our show notes today for more details. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better, the not old better show. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week.